What got you there with got you got you What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney Nick Bayer is the founder and CEO of Saxby Since maxing out his credit cards in 2005, Nick has grown Saxby's from a one cafe in Atlanta to a 30-unit hospitality business with a mission, make life better. In 2005, Nick didn't know much about running a business. He also wasn't much of a coffee drinker. But he did know he wanted to fuse the intimate community spirit of a local coffee shop with the consistently delicious product of a big-name coffee brand. This Philadelphia-based company now has a presence in 10 states and on a number of college campuses and growing pretty fast, 30% a year fast. Saxby's has frequently been named best coffee and best coffee house in many of the markets that it serves, including Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., and Dallas. In April 2015, Saxby's opened its first experiential learning cafe. The product of a partnership between Saxby's and Drexel's Close School of Entrepreneurship, it's the nation's first entirely student-run cafe where students earn credit through a university cooperative education program. A consummate team captain since Little League and twice for Cornell University's baseball team, Nick loves empowering his team members and encouraging everyone he meets to believe in Saxby's mission and core values. Nick is currently the entrepreneur-in-residence at Cornell University's School of Hotel Administration and faculty member at Drexel University, where he teaches a course in entrepreneurial franchising. If you're listening to this podcast, there's a good chance that your physical fitness is one of the most important aspects of your life. So why do you keep wearing those old workout shorts that are falling apart? Or even worse, when you're at the gym and something smells a little ripe? If that's the case, it's time to turn in those old shorts for a new pair of 10,000 shorts. 10,000 makes it super simple to purchase your new favorite workout apparel. My new favorite short is their distance short, which is super comfortable, lightweight, and perfect for all of my fitness goals. I can say without a doubt that 10,000 shorts are the most comfortable workout shorts I've ever worn. Like myself, 10,000 is obsessed with nailing the fit with the highest quality materials and construction. For the listeners of What Got You There, 10,000 is offering 20% off your first order of shorts. Yes, that's 20% off. This is just in time to purchase the perfect holiday gift for your loved one or even treat yourself to a new wardrobe for the New Year's goals. 10,000 makes three types of shorts for every way you train. The interval short that's built for versatility and mobility and perfect if you're into a bit of everything. It comes with an optional built-in liner that's the perfect compression without being too tight. It's made from super fine Italian fabrics. Ooh, fancy. So it's not just functional, but more comfortable without losing any support. And you need that support. The foundation short that's built for durability and perfect for anything with barbells, strength training, or even a weekend adventure. The distance short, my personal favorite, it's a super lightweight short, breathable, and built for running. Also, with a built-in liner, these shorts fade away while you run. When you check out, make sure you request their one-in-one-out kit. They do this super cool thing when you can send in your old gear you have for recycling, and you'll get 10% off your next order. Head to www.10,000.cc forward slash WGYT to receive 20% off your order. And if for some reason you don't love them, they have your back with free shipping, free exchanges, and free returns. Nick, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? I'm doing awesome, Sean. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, I really appreciate it. We're, we're here in Philadelphia, Center City, right on Chestnut Street. 
this is a key thing for you guys, having this retail space right here. I mean, it's a gorgeous office space, the vibe, the community you guys are building here. That's essential for the business, isn't it? Yeah. And I, and I think I realize it now that we've been able to enjoy it for three years because I have the context of not having had space like this, you know, and, and being able to compare that time versus this time, you know, I think everything has become, regardless of the business, but certainly in my industry, everything's become experiential. You know, if we don't, if we don't provide people great experiences in our cafes, they're going to go somewhere else. So I think it starts at headquarters. You know, if we don't provide a great experience at the headquarters, which is where we not only support our cafes, but this is where it all starts. We interview and hire and train everybody out of this space. And so the experience of this was critically important. And I think I've got a history of doing a lot of of the wrong things and making a lot of mistakes. This is one of one of my my quintessential wins was being able to figure out this space and get this thing right. Well, we're definitely going to talk about some failures. I love the successes. You're not from Philly originally, though. So, no, nope, from Chicago originally. So why Philly? Um, yeah, Philly sort of chose me, I guess, in that, um, you know, I, I'd been sort of all over the place, um, Chicago my entire life, th- you know, at 18, go away to college in New York, took my first job um, out of school in Atlanta. Um, so... I could have gone back to Chicago for work. Ironically, the, the firm that I had worked for was based out of Chicago, but I, I love Chicago, but I wanted to experience something else. You know, I hadn't experienced a lot of, a lot of things prior to going away to college. And so they'd opened up a relatively new office in Atlanta. And so I picked Atlanta because I'd only been there one time and I thought it was a cool young city. And so I went there, um, spent about seven years in Atlanta. And during that time is where I actually started Saxby's um, technically in Atlanta um, very, very early on. And then my first investor, an angel investor was based in Philadelphia. And he, I remember like it was yesterday, he said to me, he's like, Hey Nick, I'm i I'm a real estate guy. I don't know anything about hospitality or coffee or any of that kind of stuff that you're doing, but I know how, re- how important real estate is. And I know real estate in Philadelphia. So I would encourage you to move that business to Philadelphia because real estate will be important to the growth of Saxby's. And yeah, but again, being someone who's really good at making bad decisions, I made a pretty good decision in saying, you know what, I think Philly would be awesome. I went home to my then girlfriend, now wife, and said, Hallie, what do you think about moving to, to Philly? And she said, if you believe in Saxby's, then we should do it. And I believed in Saxby's. And so we moved here um, in 2008, just as uh, the Phillies were winning the World Series. So it, was a, it was a pretty good welcome present. Some great time there. I even get a little bit of chills when you proposed that question to your wife and the belief she had in you and the belief you had in yourself and the company. What really was it about it? What belief did you truly have? Yeah, it's funny because the business then is so different than what it is today. Um, you know, back then we were 100% franchise owned and operated. Um, simply because like I was a team sports guy my whole life and I just, that feeling of working hard and sacrificing and commiserating and celebrating with teammates that you've busted your butt with is, is intoxicating. And I felt like franchising was going to be my way of getting that sort of in the business world, but I was way too the business was way too young and I was way too inexperienced to be able to do franchising at the time. But I believe like at the heart and soul of what Saxby's was and is today was we were in the business of, of doing well for other people. We were going to be a great employer. We were going to be a great talent developer. We were going to use our success to make our communities better. We we're going to put smiles on our guest faces. We we're going to be a business that people were happy to support. And whether that was franchising or what it is now, which is corporately operated, that's what Saxby's has always been about. And that's like the one central theme that moved forward. And so when I looked at the business then, which was not yet successful, when I looked at the business then, what I thought of Saxby's was that business that did well for other people. And when she asked me, she's like, do you think Saxby's 
countries can be successful. I've always felt like if you've put that at the core of what you're doing, whether it's your personal friendships, your business, your, your business work, you're going to be successful. And so that's why I said, yeah, let's, let's do it. Let's, let's uproot ourselves from a city that we really enjoyed and move to a city that we didn't really know and go all in on, on Saxby's. And, and there's a great side story to that. She became an entrepreneur in that, in that process as well. But it, it was, uh, I'm really glad we made that decision. Yeah. I'm curious how you assess risk. I mean, you mentioned Chicago originally could have worked there, go all the way down to Atlanta, now back up to Philly. It seems like you assess risk and, and you believe in yourself, but I, I got to believe there's something deep there that you, that you really truly believe so much in yourself that you don't face failure as much. Yeah, I, I would say, you know, there, there's this like double-edged sword to things that it's like oftentimes your greatest strengths are your greatest weaknesses. Like I'm not an overly analytical person. Okay. I just, I don't, I like, I'm not one who falls prey to like paralysis by over-analysis. Like I just don't, you know, and sometimes that can be a bad thing. You know, like oftentimes I'm a relatively quick decision maker and I trust my intuition and I, and I run with my gut a lot. But I think that as it relates to like building a business, specifically building Saxby's in the coffee industry when you've got a behemoth like Starbucks, you have all these other great companies that are now sell good coffee as well. I think that that lack of overanalyzing things is ultimately a good thing for me. I have a short memory, you know, like I, I don't, um, I like to use the analogy of being like a good running back, good running backs get tackled 25 times a game. So you quote unquote fail 25 times a game, but they always find a way to get six inches or get a yard. And then all of a sudden they get a seam and they get 25 yards. You know, you get tackled, but are you falling forward? You know? And so I'm someone with a pretty short memory in that I make mistakes. I have the humility to be able to sort of evaluate it, what, what it was, learn from it, but I rarely look backwards. I mean, the short memory, I have to think maybe your baseball career at Cornell, that have anything to do with it? Baseball in general, you know, like yeah. if you're, if you're a pitcher, ba baseball is a humbling sport, you know, it's just, it's a humbling sport. Like if you're, if you're a batter and you, you get a hit three out of every 10 times, so you only fail seven out of 10, 10 times. You're going to play baseball in college. You're going to play baseball professionally. You're probably going to be in the Hall of Fame if you only fail seven out of ten times. And as a pitcher, as I was a starting pitcher my entire life, you're standing out there all by yourself. Like you're usually the, the determinant as to whether you're going to give your team a chance to win or lose. You give up five runs in the first inning, your team's in trouble. Yeah. You know, like you are in a lot of trouble. And believe me, I've given up five runs in the first inning. I'm sure I've given up more than five runs in the first inning. I've been pitching, a, I've pitched a long time and I didn't realize at the time, like I, I didn't think at like 21 when I'm pitching for Cornell playing at Yale, you know, I didn't think like, man, this is going to be the best training for, for being an entrepreneur, but man, did it help. It, it definitely helped, you know, because like you're out there by yourself, you know, and like you can't look around and point at your shortstop or point at your catcher. Like, you're going to control whether you're going to put your team in a position to win or not. And when you get rocked in the first inning, are you going to sit in the dugout and cry and make them go to the bullpen? Or are you going to pick yourself back up and, and go back out there? And so the short memory, I think, was definitely something that was trained in, in not just being a baseball player, but being a, a starting pitcher in particular. What do you think you were going to be as a kid? You know, I don't know. I mean, because my, my upbringing was, was a little, you know, a, a little different and that my parents were young didn't get a chance to go to go to school. And so they just started working. They took whatever job they could get my, from my dad that was sweeping floors in a warehouse um, when, I, when I was a baby. And, you know, therefore I wasn't brought up around like accountants or doctors or lawyers, but I actually see that as more of a good thing. Like I, I didn't grow up in a family business where it's like, hey, Nick, this is what you have to do. This is like the family thing. My parents really always impressed upon me two things. One was do well in school. I, I think about this all the time. Like my dad was just here this weekend for my son's birthday and he still really has a chip on his shoulder about not getting his college degree. 
you know, like he's made a success of himself and he's got a lot to be proud of, but like he's such a chip on his shoulder because he truly believes that he was never able to do the things that he wanted to do and the things that he was passionate about because he didn't get that piece of paper. So we always pressed education. But the second thing was to like do things that you love. Through high school, that was playing sports. Like I loved sports. I was a pretty good student, but I loved sports. Those things went hand in hand to me. And so I'm sure like most of my life, my dreams were, were around sports. But I think that's also the reason why when I got to college and I was like, okay, I need to think about more than just playing sports. Like what the heck am I going to major in? What am I going to actually do? I did an internship in finance. I did an internship in logistics. I did an internship out in LA in real estate. I have a government economics degree. People would be like, do you have like, what the hell are you doing? Like what, that is the most bizarre, strange background, but I just wanted to get out and experience things. You know, I really did. So I always joke that I wanted to either be a lawyer or a CIA agent. And that's why I have a government economics degree. And I'm clearly neither of those, but at some point in my life, I certainly wanted to be an athlete or a lawyer or a CIA agent. And now I'm an entrepreneur that runs a hospitality business. The CIA agent, I'm still waiting to be in a bar one night and I get the envelope slipped over to me to, to welcome me, but uh, that hasn't happened yet. Yep. You haven't always been a coffee drinker and I'm fascinated by this. So how does someone who isn't ingrained in coffee DNA, how do they become an entrepreneur in the coffee space? You know, I think it is actually probably somewhat abnormal. I think if you look at most entrepreneurs that have been successful in the coffee space, I would say that the majority of them are probably they started as coffee connoisseurs. Um, but what I, what attracted me to the coffee business is that it's, I, I truly believe that it's the most inclusive business in any industry. And, and by that, I mean that we serve 15,000 people in the city of Philadelphia today. We'll serve people that probably have million dollar net worths. And we have people that sadly slept under the Chestnut Street Bridge and someone put $2 in their hands so they could go get a warm cup of coffee. So a business like Saxby's treats both of those people with dignity and respect and allows them to share a space together. And that's why I got into this business. The second thing that I, I underestimated at the time, but I really truly love now is that we're also the most inclusive business from an employment perspective. We can, in, we can not only hire, but we can develop and build careers for anyone. We have people that come out of Ivy League degrees. We have people with PhDs and we have people that spent time behind bars. We have people that spent time in homeless shelters as kids. We have people who dropped out of high school. And the similarity there is that they've not just had jobs. It's not like there's the haves and sacks and the have nots. Oftentimes you wouldn't even know the difference between the two because we're in, we're in such a inclusive business that if you live and embody our mission core values and you work hard, you treat people well, you're detail oriented, we can teach you to be a CEO. Like all of our businesses are, are run by CEOs, every one of our cafes, and we can teach you regardless of what your background is. So I was attracted to this business because of its inclusivity. It's easy to learn coffee. It's, that's easy. It's not, it's not easy to learn how to love people and go out of your way, making tough decisions, spend more money to develop opportunities, to develop talent of all walks of life. But that's what I was sort of naturally inclined to do. And I love coffee now and I know coffee really well. There's people that know coffee better and I can hire those people. And I have hired those people here, but I wanted this business to compete on something that's really objective. Human experience, how we treat one another is a very objective thing. Whether you're from Jersey, you're from India, you're from the South side of Chicago or anywhere in between, we like being treated well. We like people that smile at us, look us in the eyes, thank us for our time, thank us for our business. The taste of coffee is a subjective thing. 
Some people adore my coffee. Someone might adore somebody else's coffee a little bit more than mine. So I knew we would have great product and I have great talent on product in this company. But you take great product like we have and you you put it together with exceptional hospitality with the best culturally aligned people. That's, I think, how you build a business. And that's what attracted me to the coffee industry. We're going to talk a lot about the inclusive business. But that quote you just said, you served 15,000 people today in the Philadelphia area. What is that like? I mean, I, I don't mean this to be dramatic, but I, you know, I live 20 steps from one of my cafes and then we've got 15 others like in the city of Philadelphia. So I see a lot of our coffee cups on the street every single day. And I never miss an opportunity to look at what someone's holding in their hand. Every single day walking around this city, I look at exactly what people are holding in their hands. And I, and I, my vision's not as good today as it was 20 years ago, but I can still spot a Saxby's cup from a mile away and it makes me so happy. And it's so funny because I think about it now, like my son just turned five this week and he does the same thing. Like he'll literally be looking across the street and be like, dad, that guy's holding a Saxby's cup. And we, we celebrate it. Like that's the only person in the city holding a Saxby's cup when there's thousands of people holding a Saxby's cup at that time. But like, that's when you know you're doing something that you were destined to do, you know, when you're that proud of it, 12 years into the operation, when you see someone simply carrying your cup of coffee, you know, that they paid $2 for it's uh, it's a really cool thing. And I, it's, I don't think it's something that will ever grow old. I don't, I don't think I'm ever going to be in a position where I just like, Oh man, I didn't realize that person was holding a Saxby's. I will always know that that person's holding a Saxby's. Yeah. 12 years in the making. It's unbelievable. The impact you guys have been able to have continue to work with these people, see that out in the streets. I want to go back to the early stages. You had an early investor. I want to know why that investor believed in you to put his money in your business. Yeah. You know, I actually just had um, coffee this week with an incredibly famous and successful venture capitalist named Josh Koppelman, who's based here in Philadelphia, first round capital, first investor in Uber, you know, it was just an in incredible investor and incredible entrepreneur. I mean, he started half.com and sold it for a lot of money to eBay back in the day. And he's just an amazing person. And I was telling him that story about how, you know, you hear people often say that investors invest in people. Like it's, it's almost become like a cliche, and I fight back on that cliche now, meaning that like, it's not a cliche. It's what people do. You know, I saw it with my original angel investor and he said to me, he's like, Nick, I have no idea if the coffee business is going to be successful or our venture, but he's like, I'd like to be in business with you. And then a couple summers ago, we've been private equity back for, for about four years now um, with a, a private equity group that's been in business for 32 years, incredibly successful. And the chair of our board who founded that private equity group is, is a man of few words. He's, he's not, he, you know, doesn't talk nearly as much as I do. So when he talks, you like really listen. And he asked me to be the keynote speaker to their limited partner meeting a couple summers ago. And it, I got to hear him introduce me. And I remember him saying, he's like, I've, I've told you guys for many years and you've believed in our ability to identify entrepreneurs that we could bet on and give them the bandwidth to sort of innovate, make mistakes, learn from it and move the business forward. And he's like, I remember meeting Nick and he's someone I felt like if we gave him the right coaching, the right bandwidth, he would be able to build a business that we would not only make money in, but we would be proud to be investors in. And so like that was really like the seminal moment for me when a guy as successful as Bob said to me that he's like, I bet on a person. And you know, it's, it's a, it's a big responsibility, you know, so actually it's 750 people now, you know, and so there's 750 people that in some form or fashion came to this business and it, it puts a lot of responsibility on me, but I feel like I was 
born to do this. You know, I feel like I was born to build a business and to live my life the right way in an inspired way and be a servant leader that would give people the tools to not only be good at what they do, but to actually love what they do. And so that continues to play itself all the way down. The investor believes in the, in the person entrepreneur. And now that person entrepreneur has to bet on each of those people to be able to love what they do and be good at it. You mentioned 750 people now. Earlier in the conversation, you kind of talked about the vision early on. I want to know, where did you envision the company going 15, 20 years after the start? You know, I mean, th this might show that I'm short-sighted potentially, but I don't, I don't know. Like, I, I never... I've never been obsessed with like, how big are we going to get? You know, like that, that was never, has never really been my barometer. Um, I probably do model out the business a little bit more right now, but it's, it's rarely beyond the next three years. You know, I, I think about like the things that we rely so much on now at Saxby's two, two main things come to mind, social media and our app, you know, the ability for people to pay with their phone or order ahead with their phone. Neither of those things were close to existing when I first started Taxby's. You know, the, the world just, it, it innovates and changes so rapidly. And so I'm, I've become pretty nearsighted and, and sort of focusing on where we're going to be. And I, and I think that's sort of how I was when I started. I, I, I honestly remember wanting to start a business first and foremost, because I wanted to love what I did every day. And I know that I'm at my best when I do good things for other people. And I wanted to build a business that was predicated on, on really those two things. And Fortunately, there's a lot of people out there that believe in those two things. They want to love what they do every day. And they think that hard work and being competitive is not mutually exclusive to doing well for other people, that those things go hand in hand. So I've, I've never been, it's never been about being the same size as Starbucks or just a little bit smaller or getting bigger than that. It's never been about that. You know, it's never been about that. It's, it's a, that constant evaluation of like, do I love what I'm doing? And are we making a difference? And fortunately, I've been waking up every single day for a long time now being like, yep, we're doing those two things. Yep, we're doing those two things. And, and I want to keep that going. You mentioned innovation, technology, change, the pace of change. One thing I'm always fascinated by, business owners, entrepreneurs, how do they keep up with that pace? Are there certain things you're looking for, certain companies in different industries you're studying? So I think I, I, like from an entrepreneur perspective, I'm a, a, acutely attuned to things that I'm interested in and good at, and therefore acutely attuned to the things that I'm not interested in and not good at, you know? And so you hear it all the time that like the best leaders surround themselves, not just with talent, but oftentimes talent that's smarter than them. Meaning like they know things that you don't know and they know those things very well and you empower them to know it. So I'm not a tech guy, you know, like, in fact, our tech guy teases me that like, there's no tech that I can't break. Um, so for me, like I follow brands that I like and oftentimes like if sweet green is doing something really, really interesting, I'm very attuned to that. They're very tech savvy as a company. So I use them as great inspiration, but that's usually me sending some of the things that they're doing techno technologically to the people who know technology way better in the company. But I, I'm much more of a brand follower. I believe in like the power of leaders and the power of mission and how those things emanate throughout an organization. Because I think that small armies, meaning smaller companies can battle big armies because they're so missional aligned. Everybody has each other's back 24, seven, 365. And so I really love companies that are mission generated, but being mission focused and being good at technology, again, are not separate of each other, you know? And it's, I think the, the companies that get bigger and get better are those that hire people that are really good at those things, but they're very mission aligned. Like we're in the people business. You meet Saxby's people 
especially here in Philadelphia, most people will know the difference between you know, like what a Sashi's person means. Like they're very cheery. They're big smilers. They're big talkers. They like doing nice things for other people. But my IT person is one of the friendliest people you ever meet. The facilities manager that we have who fixes things is one of the friendliest people you ever meet. I have the most, we call them parrots, like the people who just, like it's a disc assessment. We have a, a accounting department that's filled with parrots, people that will talk your ear off. Usually you're like accountants. They're not big talkers. They're pretty quiet. They just want to be tired. Like I have, we have parrots everywhere in this company because everyone has to be mission aligned, but then we want people that are incredibly passionate about and talented in their areas of expertise as well. I want to talk more about Zaxby's mission here in a second. It's up there on the wall, but you talk about surrounding yourself with unbelievable talent. Anything specifically you do during the hiring process, what you're looking for, any innate abilities they have? So I, I think one of the things that, I'm still heavily involved in the hiring process because the hiring process for us is actually three stages. So there is the traditional interview that everybody does, which all of our, our entire recruiting department all have sort of higher on the spot capabilities. Um, so there's not a tremendous amount of hierarchy there, but we let everybody know whether you're applying to be a barista, whether you're applying to be a CEO, a VP of marketing, we let everybody know that there's three steps to the hiring process here. The first is the recruiter saying, congratulations, Sean, you've been hired. Here's when training begins for you. The second is passing training, what we call sort of culture and mission, mission training. And then the third is when you sort of get placed into your, into your role, we do like a, a 60 day sort of review for everybody. And so I, I meet everybody at one of those three stages. So if it's someone who's going to be working a lot at HQ or someone who's coming into the CEO program, I'm one to one of the interviewers in that process. But if it's a barista, any barista at any cafe, when they pass hospitality training, they come and meet with me. Not as an interview though. Like I don't pull out their resume. It's a conversation. It's as much as, as my ability to connect with them as it is like our evaluating their, their potential. But we hire a lot on what we call embrace being odd. ODD. So odd, first and foremost, is unique. We like people that wake up every single day and love who they are. Don't try to be your next door neighbor. Don't try to be your little sister. Embrace and love who you are. Own your uniqueness. But the acronym is outgoing, which we define as being someone who just genuinely likes people. You don't have to be as much of a talker as I am. We want people that authentically and genuinely like other human beings. The first D is detail-oriented. You got to get the little things right. And the last is, is disciplined. You've got to love yourself be someone who loves people and gets the little things right 100% of the time. Not just when it's sunny, not just on the weekends, but every single day and every single interaction. And so it's really hard to understand if someone is detail-oriented and disciplined when you're interviewing them for 45 minutes. Much easier to know when they have to show up for training, when they have to work well with other team members and all those kinds of things. So I do get heavily involved in the, in the hiring process, more so I just, I want people that are going to love what they do here. It's, it's not as much about like, do you fit in with us as it is like, do we fit in with you? Cause like, if you don't love the way that we operate, you're not going to be happy. And again, based on my, my background and watching my parents at work, I don't want to watch, I don't want to see anybody certainly in my company do something that they don't enjoy to do. It's just it, like, we work too much. Like we work so much and life goes too quickly. I just don't want to see people have to deal with that. How do you get people to love your brand as much as you do? I mean, you built this, you're here every single day. How, how do you instill that in your employees? I mean, I would say at this point, because we, we've been doing this a long time and we've obviously created a, you know, a relative amount of proliferation in this region that people are coming to us now. You know, like when people come here for interviews, I remember back in the day, like six years ago, I'd be like, 
why are you here for the interview? They'd be like, I don't know. It's a good question. I don't know why I'm here for this interview. <laughs> like that's a pretty distant memory at this point. Now people are like, you know, for example, they'll be like, I don't know. I go to Saxby's three times every single day. And I feel like I'm just already a part of the team. So I need to be there. Or you spoke in my class at Temple or your recruiting team came in and I just felt like they were the coolest, most genuine, nicest people. And I'm like, I want to be a part of that. So now people are self-selecting to come be a part of this company. I think that's step one. And then step two is when people get immersed in Saxby's, they come to our training, they go work in a cafe, they get into HQ. I like, there's no brainwashing process. We just believe that if people self-select, they know what they know of Saxby's and they're like, that's the kind of place that I want to be. Once they're immersed, I think that they are fully in love at that point. Yeah. I think that they are like, this doesn't even feel like work. Like I was with a bunch of my CEOs this morning for breakfast and it was amazing to hear these young people who have tough jobs. I mean, they manage, I was with four of our CEOs, the, the four of them collectively manage about 200 team members millions of dollars of, of revenue. They present their profit and loss every, every month. They have competition all around them. And one of the central themes of today's conversation was how they feel like they're not working. They feel like they're doing something that they just love to do every single day. And so I think that it's a combination of them self-selecting because they know what we stand for. And then we walk the walk. They come here to work for us and with us. And we walk the walk that what they see on the outside is what they ultimately see on the inside. Yeah. I mean, you guys are certainly doing something right core missions and values. They're, they're up there on the board. We're in this gorgeous office space right now. It's ingrained in the DNA here at Zaxby's. Make life better. How did you develop this mission? So I had no mission statement. I mean, I had no, I had literally like no business experience when I started Zaxby's, which is the only way to explain how you don't write a business plan. You don't raise money, even though you don't have any money yourself at the time. And you don't write a mission core values. I just knew that there was something special about the coffee business and then I could like live the life that I wanted and make the impact in this world that I wanted through that industry. And so I just jumped in. I just literally started using my credit card. I put $150,000 on my credit card back in 2006 to be able to start this company. It took me a long time to pay that off. Um, and I would not advocate that for anybody that's listening out there. Um, it was, it was a, a time and a place and I was, you know, super naive and, and inexperienced. Um, but Many years later, the private equity group that, that has invested in Saxby's came to me. And even at that time, Sean, it sounds so crazy to me. When I say it to people here at Saxby's, they're like, Nick, it doesn't even make sense to me. How's that possible? When they invested in this company, we had not yet even defined our mission core values yet. But I remember my first board meeting with Bob, who I mentioned before, and he said, Nick, I'm just going to give you a couple key rules of, of how private equity works. And certainly private equity in this relationship. The first is, we don't make money unless you learn how to spend money. No one could chop up a dollar like I could at that point. And two, he's like, we're not here to run the business for you. We believe in you, but you need to think critically about what you're not good at and where you want this business to go and help us remove those obstacles. And in my, like, when my head hit the pillow every night, I knew that franchising was a huge hindrance to us. We couldn't make the difference that we needed to make in our communities if there was a huge wall between the corporation and what we believed in and the people that were going to actually operate it. So I knew franchising was a hindrance, but I knew that we needed to be able to define who we were. If we were going to scale this business, there needed to be a definition of what that was. And so I hired a good friend who has created an incredibly successful hospitality consulting um, firm. And I was like, Ed, you need to help me figure out what my mission core values are. And he said, first and foremost, Nick, 
If you don't walk the walk and believe in your mission core values 24-7, 365, nobody else will. So you, we need to pull it out of you. Like, why did you create a company? And that needs to be the definition. And I hemmed and hawed and pushed and pulled. I'm like, I don't want it to be about me. He's like, it's not about you. He's like, those feelings that you're going to have are not exclusive to you. Like, l- let me help pull those out of you. The idea of make life better, the idea of serve yourself by serving others, those aren't exclusive to Nick Bayer. There's a lot of people who wake up every single day. They're like, I'm at my best when I do nice things for other people. I want the daily inventory of my day to be like, did I do nice things for people? Did I make life better for other people? That's a big win for me today. There's a lot of people out there like that. So we help pull those out for me. And the last thing he said is he's like, um, you know, the good, the good companies have a mission core values is in their handbook. The truly great companies will make every decision, including the hardest ones based on their mission core values. And that's why I decided to put it on the 50 foot wide, 18 foot wall, when you know, wall in my office, you can't enter or exit my office without seeing our mission statement to make life better and our six core values, because now you can't sit anywhere in the office and not see that when you've got a tough decision, a personnel decision, a competition decision, a product decision, you, you consult your mission core values and that gives you your answer. And so it took me a long time to realize I needed to build mission core values, but that's part of the reason why I'm on my own personal mission. I'm a adjunct professor at um, Drexel. I'm an optional resident at Cornell and an executive in residence at Temple. I spend so much time in the classroom because I want people to learn from all my mistakes and arguably my biggest mistake bad to not write a business plan, bad to not raise capital, bad to start franchising when I shouldn't. The biggest mistake I made, I didn't define my, my culture. I didn't write my mission core values when I started and I paid the price for seven years. But once I did, once I rallied around and we wrote our mission core values and we've been steadfast to it, the business has taken off as a result. I mean, that's an incredible story. I can't believe 150 grand in credit card debt. What, what's the self-talk like at that time? What's the, what's the what? The self-talk. I mean, <laughs> what, what are you saying to yourself? Are, are you so afraid that you're just going to declare bankruptcy or are you like, you know what? I'm in a little debt here. It's right. going to take a while to get out, but I'm going to get out of this. Yeah. You know, I, I'm, I'm not so dense that I didn't realize how much I was putting on the credit card, but I, I do remember being eerily not that worried about it. I love that. I, and I, and I remember the thing like, you know, you all, we all have those like deep, dark thoughts that you don't oftentimes share with people. Like I definitely never shared this with people back then, including my then girlfriend, now wife, definitely not my parents. Like, I didn't share it with anybody, but I do remember the thing when I would swipe my card because I had to see the statement so that I could pay the minimum credit card balance. That was the trick. Like I had to pay the minimum card credit card balance because back then before the credit burst, you pay that balance and you keep spending, they keep sending you congratulatory letters. Congratulations, you can spend $10,000 more. I want to keep getting those letters so I could build the business. So I had to look at the statement so I could see the minimum credit card balance. Therefore, I had to see, or the minimum credit card payment, I had to see the full balance. But the thing that I used to tell myself was, it was like the same thing that sort of my dad's inferiority complex became my superiority complex is that I worked hard, my family worked hard for me to not only go to college, but to go to Cornell. And I had that piece of paper. And I truly believe that there's no greater resume builder than being an entrepreneur, whether a successful or a failed one. I believe that there's no better resume builder than being an entrepreneur. So I'm like, you know what, if I fail and I have to file bankruptcy, whatever, whatever would come of that, I'm going to be armed with a really good college degree. And the fact that I went all in, I busted my ass to be an entrepreneur and even a failed entrepreneur is a talent that everybody wants in their organization right now. Every organization, whether you're Comcast, your Independence Blue Cross, or anybody in between, everybody wants people that are entrepreneurs. Everybody wants people that will take risks, learn from mistakes, push the envelope, take responsibility. So that 
allowed me to sleep at night. You know, knowing that I had that much credit card debt as such a young person, uh, that that degree and and being an entrepreneur gave me the confidence that I was going to pick myself up. We we've talked a lot about different colleges. What you guys are doing right now for the college student in 2015, you introduce the Experiential Learning Program (ELP). I'm curious, can you explain what this is for the listeners? Talk a little bit more about it. Yeah, it's a super high level. So what this means is that we have we have eight cafes in our system that when you walk in from the street, you're going to go into a an incredibly unique and well-designed and well-operated cafe that has competition all around it, but they are exclusively designed and exclusively operated by undergraduate students of that university. And the students get paid, they get life experience of being entrepreneurs, and they get full academic credit for being able to learn how to run their own business. It's a really seminal moment in the relationship between higher education and industry. Uh, Saxby's being industry in this situation. And our first partner was Drexel University here in Philadelphia, where universities have now realized that they're teaching students in the classroom incredibly well. But in order to be able to truly provide students a holistic experience to give, put themselves in a position to not only go, go out there and get great jobs, be ready to compete and be ready to, to produce, they need industry partners that can sort of meet them halfway. And so in the pedagogy of higher ed, that, that is experiential learning. How do we give the next generation of business leaders, business people, leaders in general, the opportunity to learn by doing? And that's why we created our experiential learning program. We've had an infrastructure at Saxby's to support entrepreneurs to be able to run their own business. And so instead of it being a 40-year-old franchisee who fronts all the capital and gets to run your business... What if we make it a 21-year-old? We front all the capital. We partner with the university so the student CEO gets all this credit and then give them the opportunity to be an entrepreneur, make the mistakes, have the successes, develop the skill sets to be able to do it. And so when, I, when we first did it, and I'm looking at a picture here in my office of, of President Fry Drexel, who was the, the first higher education leader to be brave enough to give us this opportunity, it was a cool thing to do. And the day that we opened, after we took those celebratory espresso shots, John and I walked outside. The students in the community started flowing into this cafe as if it had been there forever. And John walked right up to me. He goes, Nick, I've never in a lifelong, my entire career in higher ed, I've never seen parents, students, financial aid providers, everybody demanding a return on investment like they are today. And if we can't provide them real world learning experiences, like what they're going to get in running this business we're failing ourselves. So you need to work hard to scale this program at a lot of other places. So we have now scaled this to eight other partners. We'll have probably another 10 partners next year. Like this is a program that whether you're the Community College of Philadelphia, you're Drexel University, Temple, Penn State, Westchester, all these amazing universities, they're all desperately looking for opportunities where their students get to manage people, build marketing plans, and have full profit and loss authority, which is what's happening in these businesses. Yeah, I'm not sure there's a better real-world learning experience for a college student right now. I love the program you guys are doing. It's very exciting to hear that you're going from eight, adding potentially another 10 for next year. This started back in 2015. When did the original idea come, and, and how long does that take to implement? The original idea started to come together in, in 2014. You know, So I, I mentioned them before early, earlier in the discussion that you know, I'm fortunate to have an amazing private equity group that not just provides us capital, but challenges us to think differently and think innovatively and think like entrepreneurs. And so when I evaluated a huge hindrance for us was the fact that we hadn't defined our mission core values yet. We had to take care of that. And the second thing was 
how do we do franchising better? How do we allow entrepreneurs or maybe the next generation of entrepreneurs to be able to run their own businesses. And the quick inventory of Saxby's was our best locations were around young people. So college campuses, urban cities, like that's where our best locations were. The second thing was that higher ed was now desperately looking for experiential learning. They were looking for student you know, opportunities for their students to be able to learn by doing. And, you know, the, the third thing for us is like, we were looking to be able to, to break away and do something different, do something that nobody else had done before. And so as a Cornell guy, Cornell has a very famous school of hotel administration. It's a, it's a great hospitality school. It teaches people how to run business through the operation of a hotel. And that was a good influence for me because I was like, you know what, it's hard for a 18 to 22 year old to learn how to run an entire hotel. But the philosophy there is that if you can learn all the moving parts of a hotel, you can apply that to any industry. The same thing can be said for a bustling cafe. If you have a cafe that serves a thousand guests a day, million dollars in revenue a year, employs 45 people, if you can get your arms around that and understand how to, we call it the three pillars, team development, community leadership, financial management, that's what we teach the mastery of those three skills to our CEOs. If you can master that while running a busy challenge, you know, a competitive cafe in your college campus as an undergraduate student, think about how ready you're going to be when you go out there in the real world to compete, whether you're going to be an entrepreneur, whether you're going to go work for Comcast, whether you're going to do whatever it is you're going to do. If you can do those three things, if you've got mastery of those three skills, you are going to be worth your, worth your weight in platinum to any employer or be far better off and ready to be an entrepreneur than I was when I was starting my business. And so this, we believe that this is way bigger than learning how to run a coffee shop. This is very industry agnostic. These are skills that people need to be able to really go out there and excel and, and, and succeed in life. Yeah. You mentioned skills that people need. Another thing I'm obsessed with idea generation. We're here in one of your offices, you got the big whiteboard. I see moonshots on there. And was this almost a, a moonshot type idea that you guys were coming up with? Yeah. I mean, it wasn't at the time. I mean, at the time it was very much like, this would be really cool. You know, this, this would be a really awesome thing. It's just over the bridge here in Philadelphia where we're at. It's 10 blocks away from where we're sitting. I'm like, that'd be really cool. I'd love to be able to like walk potential vendors and partners into this place. But like this whole cafe is run by students. Like I'll be the first to admit. I mean, I, I was just talking to Josh Koppelman the other day. He's like, Nick, when I invested in Uber, did I think that they were going to change transportation on a global level? No, <laughs> like I, did not, I did not realize that. Same thing on a much smaller scale can be said for the experiential learning program. Like I, I didn't realize it was that big of an idea, but it is that big of an idea. Like th this is something that we have high schools that now come and visit us and ask us to bring our experiential learning program to them. I've had many conversations with the city of Philadelphia because it takes three things to be successful in business. It takes an entrepreneur or entrepreneurs, it takes capital and it takes an op successfully operating business model. We're in the city of Philadelphia right now. There's 3 million people. There's tons of money. There's tons of entrepreneurs in every neighborhood. I don't care if the neighborhood is impoverished or wealthy. There's entrepreneurs in every one of those neighborhoods. What we don't have is the infrastructure to, to put those two things together and teach people how to run a business successfully. That's what our experiential learning program is. So I believe that it's a moonshot, not just because of the opportunity that exists in higher ed, but because of what exists in secondary ed and what happens in neighborhood development and, and opportunities that can work in cities, states, countries around the world. That's the, that's the level of opportunity that I believe exists with our program. I love your thought process. I love how you articulate these ideas. What's your thought process like when you're thinking of a new idea? Are you, are you sitting here on the whiteboard? How do you come up with some of these ideas? I, I, I've recently realize that I'm, I think out loud, like that's, that's how I think. And so people who 
unfortunately for them, spend a lot of time in my presence, I'm constantly testing ideas on people. Like I constantly am just like, I'm not one who's like journaling for nine years about an idea. And then all of a sudden I bring to life this like unbelievable idea. Like I, I, that's just not me. Like I, I have ideas that come in my head. And if I can't shake it an hour later, I start telling people about it. Like I literally just start, I just start verbalizing it to people. And then I sort of react to that. You know, I sort, I sort of react to how people react. And it's not as simple as like, oh my God, Nick, that idea is amazing. That doesn't then make me want to do it. Oftentimes that makes me not want to do it because it seems too obvious and somebody's probably already doing it. And oftentimes if people are like, that's the worst idea I've ever heard, I'm like, I'm onto something. Yeah, there might be something there because many people probably deny it today, but when I first started verbalizing the idea of experiential learning, there were not many people who believed that there would be anything there. I only needed two people to believe it though. I needed President Friar Drexel and I needed Bob, that Bob Ron, the chairman of our business, because I needed John to give us the academic credit in the real estate, and I needed Bob to give me the capital to be able to do it. They're the only two people I needed, and they were pretty much the only two people I had that thought that that crazy idea could be somewhat successful. So my ideation process is oftentimes just I think out loud, I just verbalize things, and I and I'm a, I'm a people person, you know, like I'm surrounded by people who are way smarter than me, who are way more educated than me, but like I'm a people person. I can I have some skill at reading people and getting someone's feel and their response and how they ask questions. I have a way of sort of being able to understand and package those things and sort of turn that into, into an idea. I'm trying to, to go back, pretend I'm president Fry. You do, you have an aura about you. Uh, what, what you can instill in people about the capabilities you have. I'm wondering what you did to president Fry to really make him say, yup, this is an unbelievable idea, but more importantly, Nick can execute on this idea. You know, I think part of it was the idea of socializing it the right way. So I had, um, I weaseled my way in front of a board member of Drexel, who the Entrepreneurship Institute, it's called the Biota Institute of Entrepreneurship at Drexel. I was at a, a philanthropy award uh, event. I was receiving an award for my work with Big Brothers Big Sisters, which is like a small award as it should have been. Um, and then Mel was receiving like the major award. And I just happened to be sitting at the table with him. And so I went over to him and Mel's an incredibly successful investor, uh, mostly in the tech space. And I, and I said to him, I said, Hey Mel, I have this idea, this thing I'm calling an experiential learning program. I think that Drexel would be an amazing partner for this. And Mel is a, a man of few words and was like, Nick, it's like a very interesting idea. I'd like to introduce you to President Fry. I think that was the entire conversation. So he emailed me, you know, introduced me to President Fry. So that's one of John's board members. So John's going to be pretty apt to be able to take that meeting. But he, I don't think John had any idea who I was. And I meet with him at Park here in Philadelphia. And we connected. I mean, we're, he's, he's an incredible people person. Like he runs this incredibly prestigious university, but he's just a great human being. And it was easy for us to be able to develop rapport with one another. And like my investors and, you know, the way that you and I make friends, like you want to be around people that are energetic and passionate and positive. And I try to always come across that way. And I think John saw my energy and more importantly, my passion for this. He, he understood that I didn't want to do it as a, simply just a money-making vehicle. I'm like, if I could have been able to do this myself, if I could have run a million dollar coffee shop and managed 45 of my peers when I was an undergrad, that would have been an experience unlike anything else I was able to get in higher ed. And John's like, that's what I want my students to have. And I think he took a chance that I would be able to build an infrastructure and make sure that his students would get, would get that experience. And so it was a 40 minute meeting. John didn't run, he didn't run me through the ringer. He ran me through a couple key things to make sure that I had thought about as many angles as I possibly could, but he knew it was an entrepreneurial venture. He, I'm sure John, if we asked John, I'm sure he would say, I knew there'd be a good chance of that thing failing. We all did. 
Because it's one thing that we were able to pull it together. We were actually able to get a team together, build a cafe. My investors gave me the money. But then you have to operate the thing 15 hours a day, seven days a week, about 355 days a year. People are like, Nick, are you out of your mind? 18 to 22 year olds, do you think they're going to show up and operate a cafe like that? And I'm like, yes, I am out of my mind. But yes, I also think that they're going to because this stands for something greater than just running a coffee shop. Nobody comes to work in that cafe because they're like, I just want to work in a coffee shop. They feel like they're doing something really special, not just to take care of guests, but they're getting a life experience that they know is going to benefit them when they're 23, 33, 43. And that's why they're there. And that's why they wake up at five o'clock in the morning and get in there. That's why they close the cafe at 11 o'clock and they do it the next day. Cause there was a lot of risk, but I think that John saw that I was really passionate. He knew that I'd built a company of people that were just as passionate about what we like to call opportunity and education. That's, that's the kind of company that we think that we are. We think that we're an opportunity and education provider in the hospitality business. So John knew that this wasn't just a cool little salesman gimmick. He knew that this was who we were culturally, and he was willing to entrepreneurially take the chance on us. You're positive. You're passionate. Do you have a dark side? Do you get angry? Did, did you freak out at all? You seem very calm, cool, and collected. I mean, it's it's the, like, I always say uh, the, our greatest strengths are our greatest weaknesses. You know, like, I'm always on. I wake up on. Like, I, like there's no, like, I don't like I don't need to drink coffee. Like, believe me, I, I do it because I enjoy the taste of it, and it's, like, it's what my business is. But, like, I wake up on, I am a hard charger. Like I, I love the term relentless optimism. Like I am the definition of relentless optimism, but like things don't always work the way that you want, you know, and as I am so competitive that I am, I've always had to battle being a perfectionist, you know, like that's, I'm like my, my toughest critic, you know, like I just had a board meeting on Tuesday and I probably use the word disappointed, meaning disappointed in my performance and disappointed in, in me as a leader 10 times in that meeting. Like I am my greatest critic, but I bring it every single day. Like I, I never, ever don't bring it because I walk the walk. If I expect my team members to live the mission core values every day, I sure as hell better do it every single day. So I control my effort and I bring that every day, but I'm, I'm a perfectionist. You know, I, I am hard on myself and I'm, you know, I'm a, not a taskmaster, but I, I expect people to bring it every day, you know, and it's, that's part of culture though. You know, it was like, there's no days where Nick is sad and there's the up days for Nick. Like I bring it every single day and I hold myself to a, to a high standard. And, um, I think that in some ways that, that probably is a bad thing. Like I'm not, my wife likes to say, I'm, I don't act human as much as I should probably act human. But like, I, I feel like, I feel like I'm doing what I was meant to do in this world. And I feel like I'm on a mission. And, uh, and I think that's a, a really beautiful and powerful thing. You mentioned you wake up, you're ready to go. I want to talk about routines, morning routines, and how that ties into what you're currently doing as a CEO. I'm sure when you first started, you had the ability to go <laughs> serve some coffee. You're probably pretty spread thin. So I want to know about certain routine strategies you've implemented and then how you protect your time as the day progresses. Yeah. I mean, again, I, I talked before about the, uh, you know, embrace being ODD, you know, the, the discipline side, my dad is a super disciplined person. You know, I think that there, there's some DNA benefit I got there, but I, I run a very disciplined life at this point. Was not always the case. You know, especially like pre-marriage, pre-son, like it was not always the case. Like, and so I have to talk to a company that's really, really young, like 750 people, the average age is 22.2 years old. Um, so it's a young company. And so I talk to them all the time about like, it's okay to be 22 years old. You know, like I, I, I can't expect them to all operate the way that I operate in life right now. Um, but I, I have learned a couple key things. One is the power of no, you know, it was like understanding what it is that you're good at, what it is that you're passionate about and protecting your schedule and your time. So you're only doing those things. 
I'm a philanthropic person. I've built a philanthropic business. I believe in business as a vehicle for good. So obviously I get asked to be, not obviously, but I get asked to be on boards all the time and support things all the time. And I, I have a tendency as a relentless, optimistic person, I have a tendency to want to naturally say yes to everything. Over the last two or three years, I've learned the power of no, nice no's, you know, where I let people know, like, I'm not going to be able to lean in and help there. But and, and, and the routine, like I hear a lot of people, especially at, at my, like I just turned 40 this year and I, and I feel like I'm 30. I hear so many people at my stage because life is so hard at this stage right now. You know, it's like, you're at the, you're at like this important time of your career. You know, it's like you're at your prime, like leadership stage and money-making stage. And like, you have all these challenges from a professional perspective. Many of us are married and having young kids at this stage, you know, and, and you're, you know, you're, you're getting a little older. Like I remember dunking the basketball and I remember doing all these things I probably can't do anymore. It's like, you're having to deal with all those things. And I think that most people have this tendency to prioritize, prioritize themselves the least. And I learned, and I have the benefit of having a wife who owns an incredibly successful Pilates studio to prioritize myself. And so I wake up every single morning early before my wife, before my son, and I prioritize myself by doing Pilates. And that has had just an immense immense benefit for me. Like not just my body, but my mind. Cause most people it's like, I'm going to grind on my job and I'm going to grind with my family. And then there's some, some left leftover time. I'm going to do something for myself. I actually start my day by doing something for myself. And then I work into sort of the, the business and personal side. And that has helped me so much. So the, the, you know, put, do good things for yourself and the power of no, only saying yes to things that you're so aligned with and you're so passionate about, you're only going to benefit yourself and benefit the people that you're partnering with. That's, that's been my like secret sauce. And it's a day by day thing. You know, I was telling you before we, we jumped on here that I've way overscheduled myself this week. I had a board meeting this week and I look at my schedule. I'm like, how the hell did I overschedule myself? So it's like, I'm still a work in progress, but those two things have helped me a lot. So hectic week just before the holidays, you way overschedule yourself. How do you stay rooted, stay grounded and, and get that time in the Pilates time in the morning without thinking of 50 other things you have to do that day? I, I don't know if this was like a, like I was a born with it thing or if it's like a, you know, a learned thing, but I'm a... I've always been a look forward person, you know, like I just don't like, I'm sure I said 10 stupid things in my board meeting and there were 10 other things I could have presented in my board meeting in a better way. But like I take my notes during the meeting, I review them that night, I review them one time the next morning and then I move on. Like I just move on. Like I, I don't like, again, it's, it's a good thing and a bad thing. You know, I think that my wife sometimes, I'm sure some of my team members wishes I, I were a little bit more like empathetic and like, like feel sorry for things. And like, I'm just not, I'm a, I'm a move on kind of person. You know, it's just, uh, I think it's, I channel in a pretty good way, but I'm sure it's not always great. I'm sure sometimes people are like, can you feel sad with me? Like, can you, can you be down in the dumps with me? And I just don't, I, I'm just not really capable of doing that. I, again, I don't know if I was like born that way or if I, it's been like a developed thing, but I'm a, I'm a look forward kind of person. I, I just don't look backwards a lot. Looking forward, where are top priorities right now? Trying to move the business to the next step. So, you know, the, the big things where we're big, big believers here and what we call uh, what are called OKRs, um, which are objectives and key results, um, famously sort of like not necessarily first introduced, but, but probably made famous first with, with Google. Um, so Google's original investors, um, sort of introduced this management technique to them and, and it's been very successful for them and many other companies. So we've actually started applying it here at Saxby. So our, our objectives this year are in a couple, you know, few critical areas. One is we're excitingly, we're going to be opening our own roaster 
history here in Philadelphia this year, which is really awesome. So I was just in Columbia two weeks ago. I've got an, a, an amazing um, head of coffee that we brought on who's been you know, all over South America the last two months by creating relationships, buying coffee. So we're going to get that ramped up and running by uh, end of Q1, beginning of Q2 20, 2019, which is just a huge advancement for us, not just in quality of product, but passion for product, knowledge of product throughout our entire company and for our consumers. Um, the second thing is, is, you know, we have the benefit of serving 15,000 and, and growing guests every single day. So continuing to innovate and provide better experiences at the cafe level. Two critical areas of, of focus there for us will be the app, the Saxby's app. Technology is here to stay. The, that form of payment, the form of ordering your, you know, ordering ahead if that's a convenience you want. I predict that in the next two years, 50% of our transactions will come via our app in some form or fashion. And so that, that's a critical area. The second thing is, is menu innovation in that area. I think that we are continuing to be emboldened to not just be a pretty good player from a menu perspective. I want to be an innovator. I want to be a leader on what menu looks like in our kind of business. And that's a big priority for us. And the third thing is, is uh, the proliferation of our experiential learning program. We think we have something unique to us, something that we're authentically good at. And I think that the world really needs right now. So th those are our really cr three critical focuses going into 2019. You mentioned in two years, you foresee that there's going to be 50% of orders taking place online. I, I love the mobile ordering. I think it's revolutionary. What percentage of your business right now takes place in that transaction? So there's sort of two critical parts to that. There's simply like the transaction being done on the phone, you know, so you hold your phone up to like the, the QR code. I think that that in and of itself will be 50% gotcha. and a subset of that is the, what we call the order ahead function. Gotcha. So you're sitting in Saxby's HQ, you're like, you know, I'm going to pop by Saxby's Rittenhouse, I'm going to order my drink and I'll pick it up at, at 1115. I, I believe that the um, the app as a payment function will be about 50% in the okay. next two years. Um, I believe that the order ahead is probably going to be around 20% for us. Um, right now we are at about, so we're at about 12% of transactions. Uh, I'm sorry, we're at 14% of transactions paid through the app and we're at about 7% of that comes via mobile order. So ordering ahead. Gotcha. You mentioned menu development. When the business first launched, how much of your business is drip coffee and where is that at today? And then how's that changing even say two years from now? Man, it has changed so much. So I mean, it's sort of the, the power of 70. So 70% of our business used to be done before 11 a.m. in the company. Now about 70% of our business is transacted after 11 a.m. And our number one SKU that we sell, like we're right at the end of 2018 right now. So the number one SKU that we've sold at Saxby's is, is cold brew. So cold coffee, coffee that's steeped for 14 hours overnight and served on ice. Even though we're in Philadelphia, you know, a city that's cold for about six months of the year, the number one SKU that we sell is cold brew. And so that's, that trend will continue. Um, and so it's been fascinating to sort of see how that's, yeah, it's changed because oftentimes hot coffee, the manner with which it's brewed, it oftentimes is a little bitter. Cold brew, and particularly our cold brew, is sweet. I mean, those are two completely different taste preferences. And therefore, what pairs well with a bitter hot coffee and what pairs well with a sweet cold brew are very different. So the menu that supports those lead items, therefore, has to be different as well. And I don't, I don't see that changing anytime soon. I mean, I think that you see a lot of innovation happening in the coffee business. A lot of it is happening around cold items. We talk a lot about innovation during this podcast. You mentioned when you, when you have an idea, you mentioned to two people, they kind of disagree a little bit. What are you thinking right now that not many people believe in? Well, that's a good question. Um, I, I do. I oftentimes tell my management team that I'm, uh, I don't even have to really tell them at this point. I think they, they predict it now, but I, I, I like disagreement, you know, so I oftentimes will force disagreement on people because if we're all believing the same thing, 
there's something wrong with that decision making process. So I oftentimes encourage people to to spar and, and to disagree. So what is something that I'm I'm believing? Um, whew, that's a good question. I, I would say, I, I, you know, I would say that one of the things is that food and coffee shop, what, what people have historically called coffee shops can be done well. You know, I think that people have looked at Starbucks forever and Starbucks is an amazing company has created their own massive industry that a lot of us operate in now. Food's never been their focus. It's oftentimes prepackaged, it's microwaved, it's just not, it's not of the quality of everything else that they do. And so I think therefore most people think that if you're going to operate a 1500 square foot cafe in the world that's competitive with Starbucks, you can't do food well. And I think that we are proving certainly at select locations where we have bigger food programs, but I think we're going to prove across the board in 2019 and beyond that you can have incredibly well-executed food with an incredibly well-executed coffee program. I'm excited to see you guys execute upon that. We've talked about different mentors you've had, big stack of books behind me. Uh, it seems like you're a voracious reader. Some of those mentors, I want to know, when's the last time you've been in a room with someone that you were just truly wowed by them? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was Wednesday. So it's, it was two days ago with Josh Koppelman. You know, it's, I, um, the, the way that that came about, so I've, I've known Josh for a while. Like everybody in Philadelphia knows who he is, at least in the entrepreneurial space, because he was famous on, you know, famously successful entrepreneur, famously successful venture capitalist. He's a philanthropist. He's the chair of the board of the organization that now owns and manages the Philadelphia Inquirer, the Philadelphia Daily News, which has been converted to a B corporation, to a better corporation. I mean, he's just, he's a, He's a remarkable human being. So I get an email from him two weeks ago saying, hey, Nick, I noticed that this nonprofit that I support, it supports female entrepreneurship. One of the items that you could bid on was having coffee with Nick Bayer. And I'm like, I don't know who would actually want that, but um, apparently my company put that up as something that someone could bid on. And guess who buys it? Josh Koppelman, of all people, who people would pay <laughs> a lot of money to have coffee oh, yeah. with him. So he buys, he's like, I just thought that this would be a cool way for us to be able to catch up a little bit. So I, I go to his office on Wednesday and we got to sit down and I mean, it's like, I, I love, I just like people. Like I, I like sitting with people and whether they've had this famous career or not, I think everybody has amazing stories. But when you sit with someone like Josh, it's, uh, man, I walked, I like flew out of there. You know, I was like, I was like energized by not only how smart and successful he was, but how down to earth he was. You oftentimes expect when people have been that successful, that they're just going to be jerks. You know, they're just like, they're larger than life and they think that they're smart and everybody, I could not believe how unassuming and I, and I know him, but like, that was the first time we'd spent an hour and a half together uninterrupted in a long time. And it was motivating for me. You know, it was, it was a re, it was a real motivator for me to like continue to love what I do. Cause it's so clear that he loves what he does. And, and to be able to just say so grounded and say so humble, you know, humbled and humbling. And it's a great motivator for me, you know, cause like I know the impact him spending some time with me has on me and what the impact that I can have on the next generation of entrepreneurs has on them. So it was a really, really great reminder to me to continue to put a lot of time into that. Speaking of other motivators, any books over there that you've read that you highly recommend, maybe someone specifically in the hospitality industry? Yeah. I mean, our Bible here, like literally everybody that's actually has read uh, what, I, what I think is the Bible really should be of any business, but any business that believes in the power of hospitality and human experience is setting the table by Danny Meyer it's just an awesome book. And Danny's a great guy. I've been able to meet him a few times. I mean, it's just one of those guys where like you read the book and you feel like you know him and then you meet him and you're like, wow, he is that. 
inspiring and that, that good of a person. So I'm a huge, huge believer of that. And I just, I love entrepreneurial stories. So you see like Jack Welch's books and you see Tommy Hilfiger's book. And I, you know, at the very top is Phil Knight's shoe dog. So I love reading entrepreneurial stories because I'm sure there was a time where I used to feel sorry for myself where I was like, I didn't grow up with money. I had to make it all on my own. I made all these bad decisions. I'm the king of self-inflicted wounds. And I read all those books. I'm like, holy crap, every one of them has had all of those same, same mistakes. And they didn't feel sorry for themselves. You know, like every one of those books. But I love, like, I could read Shoe Dog a million times over. Like, that's fast because I love Nike. I like, like the brand. I'm just amazed at how they continue to not only like stay on top of the game, but reinvent themselves. But you, th- like, I think that that was like, I certainly my age, and I'm sure yours as well. Like Nike was like the household name, but it took them 15 years to be anything, to be anything. Like he was a wholesaler of a Japanese shoe company for like 10 years. It took him 15 years to be anything. And the only reason he got Michael Jordan coming out of the draft is because Adidas wouldn't pay him as much money as he wanted. And he didn't want to wear Nikes. I mean, could you imagine how different that is now? Like it's so different, but Phil Knight was tenacious at what he was doing. He believed in what he was doing and he just put one foot in front of another. And next thing you know, he's built this unbelievable business. So I, I love reading entrepreneurial stories. So I, I would say to everybody out there, everybody has to read setting the table. It's an, an incredibly important business about building culture and empowering your people. And what a story, you know, uh, Phil Knight's is with, with shoe dog. Yeah. Shoe dog by Phil Knight. Absolutely unbelievable. You mentioned Danny Meyer. You have a photo with him over my shoulder here. H- how do you extract the most amount of knowledge from someone like that? Maybe the few minutes you get to meet with them. Um, I mean, I think it's like to not overthink like what you're going to ask them. You know, I think, I think that like when I was younger and if I knew I was going to meet someone like, like a Danny Meyer, like what's an interesting question that he's going to want to hear? I'm like, why the hell am I going to ask a question that he wants to hear? Like if you get that second in front of a person like that, get something that you're going to be benefiting out of. Like he's going to probably forget that he met you, but you're not going to forget that you met them. So why don't you get some really, really good advice? And so for example, was Josh Koppelman. Like obviously I'm in awe of Josh Koppelman. I think he's an incredible, incredible person. And we're lucky to have him here in Philadelphia. And he was at the chamber of commerce board meeting with me the other day, presenting on behalf of like the inquirer. But I knew one of the important things that I needed to be able to ask him was, was his opinion as both an entrepreneur, but really more so as a venture capitalist on the, on the importance and the value of becoming a B Corp. So it's a new form of incorporation. So instead of an S Corp or a C Corp, it's becoming a B Corp and where you change the definition of shareholder. So shareholders of all types of for, for profits means you as a business leader make decisions with the sole focus of how do you make more money for your investors? B Corp changes the definition of shareholder. Shareholder is now, how do you benefit your community? Your community is defined as your your employees, the communities you serve, the vendors that work with you, and your investors. So this idea of like business is a vehicle for good. So I'm like, Josh, do you think it's a bunch of BS? He goes, Nick, it's the future of capitalism. I think I'm investing in more B Corps now than companies that are not B Corps. So when you get that time with someone that you really look up to, ask them a question about what you want to know. Don't try to impress them. And maybe I'm the only crazy person who back in the day was like, I'm going to ask them a question that's going to impress them that they're not like, get something out of it. You know, like get something out of it because people like doing something for somebody else. It makes Josh feel good that he gave me nuggets of advice that I can hopefully be able to run with. It makes him feel good. And I, it's going to make me feel really good if I can actually execute on, on the advice he gave me. That's absolutely incredible advice. Final thing I want to know, you've talked about it a lot, future vision for this company. Where do you see this company? I know you think mostly only in three years, five, 10 years, what, where Zaxby's going. 
I mean, I, I think that Saxby's will become a B Corp. I think that we will become a, a company because we operate like a B Corp. Many people think that we are a B Corp. Those that understand what B Corp is and like some really famous and successful companies that are B Corps, Patagonia, Tom Shoes, Warby Parker, Allbirds, which just recently raised money to put them at a billion dollar valuation. Like these are not just cutesy little businesses where people are like just donating money and don't care about being competitive and successful. These are, this is the future of doing business. And I, and I say that because if you look at millennials, you look at iGens, you look at the young people right now, millennials now account for in the U S more consumer spending than any other generation. They are three times more likely to spend their money with, and two times more likely to work for companies whose mission they believe in. So whether you, whether you believe that that's how you should run your business or you just want to be successful, you better, you better account for that in your business if you want to attract the best talent and you want them to actually buy from you. So I see us moving in a direction of not just being a B Corp. And I don't, I don't mean this arrogantly or audaciously in any manner, but I see us being a quintessential B Corp. I see us being a company where our case study, like when people study our business and the bads of the past and the goods of the future and the great, hopefully of the, of the deep future, we would become the quintessential company to be like, look, before Saxby's was a B Corp, before they wrote their mission statement and operated like this, they were a me too that nobody cared about. And then they put their people and their communities in front of purely making a profit and look at how the business took off. I want to see us become a quintessential case study for why operating in a, a business being good for, for more than just making money is, is, yeah, that matters. And I want to see our experiential learning program be what it should be. I think that it is going to be one of, if not the most important vehicles to teach the next generation of entrepreneurs and business leaders, how to get the skills that they need to be successful. Moonshot thinking. I could talk to you for hours about this. I I'm looking forward to rewinding in 10 years, looking back on this conversation and seeing how you guys execute on this. Cause I truly believe you guys are on the precipice of something huge here. I can't thank you enough for joining us. Where can the listeners best stay connected with you? So I, I'm, I really like social media at this point. I've learned to like social media. So I'm, I'm a big LinkedIn user because back in the day, everyone was trained to like get a business card. And if you got a business card, you just got my like email address and, and a phone number. But if you connect with me on LinkedIn, my community on LinkedIn can be your community. You know, that people can say, hey, Nick, I didn't realize you're connected to Sean. Can you make an introduction for me? So I'm a big believer in LinkedIn. So Nick Bayer. Um, and I like, I like Twitter. I mean, I think Twitter is incredibly important. Um, I think it's like, it's the, it's the future of sort of sharing news. And so at Nick Bayer on, on Twitter and then Instagram, I think is a, is a really good way. I think is I try to be a, I try to be a, a pretty transparent and, and relatable leader. And so I, I use Instagram pretty personally. Yeah. You, know, you see stuff with my wife, you see stuff with my son, you see sort of like the behind the scenes of my life. So that's at Nick Bayer six. That's like my old, my old baseball number. So that's my way of uh, remembering the glory years a little bit. If there was such a thing, Nick Bayer, CEO of Saxby's. I can't thank you enough for joining us on what got you there. Thanks, Sean. If you're listening to this podcast, there's a good chance that your physical fitness is one of the most important aspects of your life. So why do you keep wearing those old workout shorts that are falling apart? Or even worse, when you're at the gym and something smells a little ripe, 
If that's the case, it's time to turn in those old shorts for a new pair of 10,000 shorts. 10,000 makes it super simple to purchase your new favorite workout apparel. My new favorite short is their distance short, which is super comfortable, lightweight, and perfect for all of my fitness goals. I can say without a doubt that 10,000 shorts are the most comfortable workout shorts I have ever worn. Like myself, 10,000 is obsessed with nailing the fit with the highest quality materials and construction. For the listeners of What Got You There, 10,000 is offering 20% off your first order of shorts. Yes, that's 20% off. This is just in time to purchase the perfect holiday gift for your loved one or even treat yourself to a new wardrobe for the New Year's goals. When you check out, make sure you request their one-in-one-out kit. They do this super cool thing when you can send in your old gear you have for recycling and you'll get 10% off your next order. Head to www.10,000.cc forward slash WGYT to receive 20% off your order. And if for some reason you don't love them, they have your back with free shipping, free exchanges, and free returns. A few months ago, my body was experiencing a ton of pain, and that's when my friend and former podcast guest, Noah Olson, turned me on to Pure Spectrum CBD. Their CBD products have been tremendous in relieving a lot of the pain in my body. Their products are pure because everything they make is tested every time for quality, consistency, and efficiency. They're 100% organic, third-party tested. There's a 100% guarantee, and they're THC-free. If you want to receive 10% off the entire site, head to PureSpectrumCBD.com and enter code WGYT. That's 10% off the entire website at PureSpectrumCBD.com with code WGYT. For the What Got You There listeners who love to travel and want to see the world, listen up. We've teamed up with Globekick, who make it affordable to enjoy peak life experiences with like-minded people from around the world. Globekick expertly designs, curates, and scouts global adventures for you to join. Each trip lasts one week and is designed to balance their unique blend of adventure, culture immersion, and relaxation. Globekick has some epic adventures planned, such as cage diving with great white sharks in Cape Town, South Africa, dog sledding and northern light chasing in Norway, and to see the rest, head to globekick.com. If you want to travel the world with your kind of people and not break the bank, then make sure to stop at globekick.com and enter code WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? Thanks for listening to another episode of What Got You There. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and also share with your friends. Thanks so much. Looking forward to talking with you next time. If you want to stay up to date on all things I'm working on behind the scenes and everything we've got going on at What Got You There, head over to whatgotyouthere.com. You'll also be able to see more on podcast guests and what they're doing. Thanks to Justin Great for providing us the intro and outro song. If you like his music and want to find out more about what he's working on, head over to justingreat.com.